Hey, welcome to Race to Academia, brought to you from the Race and Ethnicity Caucus of University of Toronto's Graduate Student Union, where we talk to experts about race and race-related issues within academia and showcase the academic work and research of racialized graduate students. I'm Joe. And I'm Melon. On this week's episode of Race to Academia, we interview Elaine Kaguata, who is a third-year PhD student at the University of Toronto. She expresses her interest in single-story narratives of deafness, disability, and race within police institutions. At the end of the episode, the student highlight will be Bilal Khan, who is a first-year PhD student at the Institute of Health Policy, Management, and Evaluation, and discusses his research on the need for better mental health services in the criminal justice system. Let's jump right into our conversation with Elaine. Hey, Elaine. Thank you for joining us today. How's it going? Hey, Maylon. Thank you for having me. It's going well. How are you doing? I'm good. We're so happy to have you here. So, Elaine, can you please tell us um, what your program is and what your research is on? Sure. Yeah. So, I'm a third-year PhD candidate in the Department of Social Justice Education at University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for studies and education. It's a mouthful. Um, and my research explores single stories of deafness, disability, race, and policing produced and reproduced by and within the institution of police. And I do this so I can reveal different meanings, or I can hope to reveal different meanings of what else deafness, disability, and race might mean for the human condition. What an interesting topic. What brought you to, to look at, you know, deafness and policing or disability and policing? Yeah, you know, I'm a very influenced by Black studies and by a lot of Black women writers, you know, just to name a few, like Audre Lorde, June Jordan, also Black women activists, Asada Shakur, and all of these women teach us that the personal is political. Right. So we're often, I think, taught that those two are separate or that there's a, that binary between the personal and political. And when you blur that binary, you realize that what we do usually uh, in academia or what we choose to research gestures back towards something that happened in our own lives or something that we really care about that's emerged in our own lives. And so a long answer to your question, Joe, is, you know, in my own life, race, disability, and policing came up. And I'll leave it at that. But once it came up in my personal life, it was really difficult to imagine how I wouldn't, how I wouldn't make that part of my research, how I wouldn't make that part of a PhD project that's supposed to last four years or more, right? And so they always, I've heard it's been said, you know, be ready if you're going to take or do your PhD, be ready to make it your life's work. And so I made what I care about, what's personal to me, my life's work. That's awesome, Elaine. And I think um, that incorporation of your personal and political life will probably make your PhD thesis excellent, I can just predict. Um, if you could um, talk about what you mean by um, single stories, like what does it mean when you say that? Great question, Elaine. Yeah, no, I'd love to talk about that. So storyteller uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie t- 
talked, introduced the, actually this concept of the single story uh, in mainstream discourse through a TED talk, I think that's now infamous. Happy to share that with you um, after. But in this TED talk, Adichie talks about the danger of the single story and that the danger of the single story is telling one story about a place, about a people's, about a community. And that story becomes the only story we know about them. And in, in their TED talk, you know, they talk about the single story of Africa. But in my work, I'm really interested in the single stories that we tell about deafness, disability, race and policing together and separate, but that put containers, like put containers or put people into containers. If you're deaf, you have hearing loss. If you're disabled, you have less function. If you are racialized, you are lesser than the white person. Like just to be able to have a concept or a name for these stories that put us in containers and that often try to fix a lid on what else those ways of being in the world might mean, right? So what else can deafness mean beyond that single story of hearing loss? What else can disability mean beyond that single story of deficit? Uh, you know, what else can race mean beyond its relationship to whiteness, right? And I just, yeah, I was really taken by that TED Talk and also just by that concept. And so that is what I mean by the single stories, the single stories that we tell that make that story the only story about a way of being. Well, I think it's such an important kind of idea that we start to push is that it is important to hear other people's narratives um, without being able to have the understanding of other people's stories. And that's kind of what drew me to qualitative research uh, in general. It was the idea that, you know, it's not about the numbers. It's not about because people are more than numbers. Quantitative research a lot of times can boil things down to, OK, well, you know, there may be racism within this particular practice. And yes, we can, you know, show some kind of statistical um, idea of it. But if we don't really know what the general like the genuinely lived experience of racialized people of people with disabilities sharing what their truth is we really can't have productive conversations we won't in also i think that change usually comes from being able um to have that empathy with another person's story and how we interact with that story changes the way that we fundamentally view the world and so I, I really appreciate that this structure it does it does exist and it's being used in, in in academia. No, for sure, for sure, Joe. You said a lot of there are a lot of little nuggets there in what you said, in terms of the importance of listening and being bearing witness to other people's stories beyond the stories that we often impose right on people. And I think that is what I'm trying to resist. And in my work, I'm very, I'm very aware as well. I'm very 
aware that I'm writing and exploring this work as a non, I mean, I don't identify as disabled. I, I do identify as racialized, but you know, there's this amazing disability studies scholar, his name is Rod Michalko. And he says that, you know, while he's a blind scholar too, and he says, you know, while you might not live in blindness, you know, we all live with blindness. So meaning we all live in relationship to it. And so I understand myself as well. I don't live in disability. I live with disability, with meaning in relationship to disability. And so I think that's so important when we think about stories and we think about listening to what other people have to say about their own experience and how do they share that? How do they share that story as well, right? So there's there are oral traditions, there are narrative traditions that we are not necessarily privy to in in mainstream discourse and so i think that's also another thing to consider is how do these stories come about and how are they told i mean i gotta be honest like this is exactly why i got into academia and it's just so exciting to be able to talk to like-minded people um especially about um topics that are really important to us um and it kind of gets me fired up and interested in being able to look not necessarily just at my own research because it's you know it's it's very focused, but starting to have a better understanding of of other communities that are marginalized, so that I can be let's say I guess a better ally in in one sense, but to be able to uh, to help. Um, but so one of the things that you did mention um, that uh, so as a racialized individual, um, so we we like to ask our guests kind of you know what their racial or ethnic identity is and then also how that has shaped your experience in the world today or even in the past sure yeah so i am an immigrant i identify as an immigrant woman i immigrated here with my dad and my brother from bahrain and I am Filipino as well. I, I'm still thinking through what it means for me to be racialized. I honestly, until, well, that's not true. I was going to say until I was, until that situation happened where disability, deafness, race, and policing kind of came up personally in my own life, I didn't think about really about being racialized, but that's not true. I remember being younger, um, and I tell this story, I've told this story in classes too, um, where it really hit me that I was perceived differently because of my skin color. I was in grade one or grade two, and I was new to a school. My, my stepmom dressed me up in this pink, like the bright pink outfit. And I think it was velvet, like I don't, anyway, and, um, I say the color only to kind of juxtapose the color of my skin. When I was younger, I was very dark and I'm still dark skinned, but uh, I was much darker skinned when I was younger. And the game at recess was that all the kids were running away from me. And that was when I realized, oh, I'm different. <laughs> and yeah, that was kind of my first introduction to being racialized I think and I remember that memory very vividly and uh yeah so I went to school that was in a small town I grew up in a small town I guess they call themselves a city but let's be real uh Fort McMurray in northern Alberta 
I mean, small towns. Am I right? <laughs> it's it's, it's but it's it's just one of those things, and it's unfortunate. Um, so my partner uh, is from a small town, um, in uh, Nova Scotia, um, and and she kind of talks about, uh, just kind of the small town mentality, and and just how often you know seeing people of color of, of of any sort, it doesn't even make a difference whether that be you know, uh, just any racialized group was just something that, um, that she didn't see, right? So it's, it's, at least now, I think that let's hopefully let's think that now that the world's getting a little bit bigger, that people are starting to think a little bit differently in small towns. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case. You know, what's really interesting there, what you're saying, Joe is, is, you know, there's this, there's this amazing writer, uh, named Hortense Spillers, and she talks about the cultural seeing of skin color. And I, I, I bring that up because I hadn't experienced how my skin was a color until I moved to that small town, right? And you're talking about that small town culture, we're kind of that's that's kind of where I feel we're landing on. And it's really interesting because when we were living in Bahrain, you know, my my family, we were very much a part of the Filipino community there. And we'd never, that our culture there didn't necessarily touch on our color, I mean, our skin as color. And so it was only until, you know, we entered a new culture, you know, we were inserted or inserted ourselves into a new space, a new place, new ways of seeing, right? Playing on sight there that I, we became, you know, subjects in a way to that cultural seeing of skin color, subjects and objects, right? Because uh, in that story I shared, I am the object, but then I learned that that was how, that's how people saw, that's how sight was taken up in that culture, in this culture, in Western culture, is that we see race as skin color. But the reason why I tell you I'm still thinking through my racialization is because I think race as a concept goes beyond sight. I think there's the sound of race, and that's part of the cultural seeing, right? The sound of race meaning accents, you know, language, how how we refer to particular things that might not be in our in the Western lexicon. Anyway, it could go on, but yeah, just really wanted to share that about the cultural seeing of skin color. What does it mean that we culturally see it? Yeah, I think that's a really excellent um, perspective, Elaine. Um, and I guess, like, have you found in your research that the racialized experience has been exacerbated for people with disabilities? Yeah, Milan, that's a great question. And I would say absolutely. I I would say I don't have numbers for you in response to that question, but part of my work is watching videos that have been filmed by, uh, well, one of them, for instance, is filmed by a community member. Another one is filmed by uh, a cops like dash cam. And in those two videos, the, the people the cops are encountering are black and deaf. Um, but you see prior to them, to the cops understanding that those subjects are deaf, you know, whether or not they ever fully understand that or not, <laughs> that's to be argued. They, they, again, going back to sight, you know, they encounter those people 
was black. And they, in that encounter, have expectations of what blackness might mean or might do on the street. And I say on the street because that's the setting in which the videos take place on the street. And so, yes, I do think that when we talk about race and disability and policing, that race and disability, you know, manifest a very unique experience for folks um, who do encounter police when they're racialized and disabled, because there are expectations of of race. There are expectations of blackness. There are expectations of disability or mental illness on the street. And usually those expectations are wrapped up in what Lisa Cottrell calls an ineligible an ineligibility of personhood. We deem someone ineligible for personhood when we talk about deeming people as criminals as deviants, as strangers. And I know that's a really long answer to your question, but I just, I think, you know, like one time, I think it was recently, I was talking with someone and they asked me, you know, what does race have anything to do with deafness and policing? And my answer, I mean, first I was really shocked <laughs> because I realized I'm just so in this now that I, I, like questions like that kind of floor me. But my answer was it has everything to do with deafness and policing. But I think it's one of those things where, and honestly, before I even started research, I didn't really necessarily understand what intersectionality was and how, you know, you, you're not just one part of yourself, right? Your, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your ableness or disability is going to be a part of kind of of who you are right and there's no way that we can somehow take one part away from us and then also that society is somehow going to be able to you know take away those pieces of you you may be fully aware of those pieces but at the same time no one else is going to be aware of those pieces especially if it's a disability that is not something that you can i guess see i guess in in the, in the sense of, of kind of um like visually but um so one of the questions that i had would be uh, so within uh, policing, have you seen anything or are there tools that you would hope to see implemented within the police force to be able um, to, let's say, decrease the amount of incidences between uh, individuals who are racialized and, and with a disability and having um, extreme circumstances um, with the police? Yeah. Joe, so uh, in 2018, researchers, academics, uh, Russell Chauvaz and Boudreau, and I may be mispronouncing them, they compiled a report. And the report was titled, you know, The Administration of Justice, the Experiences of Deaf, Deaf Blind, and Deaf People with Additional Disabilities in Accessing the Justice System. And in this report, they interviewed deaf, deafblind, and deaf people with additional disabilities across Canada, right? This was in 2018. And not surprisingly, they found that, the, that members of the deaf, Canadian deaf community that they spoke with do not have equitable access to communication when interacting with the justice system. And when we say the justice system, we don't only mean police officers, we also mean correctional officers, we also mean 
judges, lawyers, you know, court appointed interpreters, right? And so deaf peoples, you know, and I know you asked about disabled people, but you know, deaf disabled people, deaf people's access to the justice system as they found out has many layers, right? And that duty to accommodate that those those that community must consider constructs related, you know, particularly relevant to my work related to policing and prison and in policing, for instance, ways we can perhaps improve accommodations include thinking about accessibility and time sensitivity of interviews, interpreter skill levels. So ASL interpreters have various skills the scope of practice, um, effective communication strategies, such as turn-taking, transparency, writing, if that's part of that deaf person's way of communicating. And then in prison, you know, people working within prisons or within the correctional systems, you know, might start with being more aware of, of what the accommodation needs of deaf prisoners right? Educating prison personnel about the cultural, linguistic, liter literacy, and mental health issues that affect or that may affect a deaf individual. So those, you know, that report was very informative. And again, I can definitely send that to you in May 1. But that report was very informative in helping me understand, you know, what can be done better. But I'll be really frank, my work is is, you know, I, I, I proceed, I should say, in my work, believing that a system that began, and I'm talking about the institution of police, I'm talking about institutions of carceral spaces, of prisons, mental health institutions, I should say mental institutions, um, to name a few, that began with whiteness as their driver meaning that began with containment of racialized and otherwise marginalized bodies as lesser than the white, quote, normal body cannot be reformed. My work is therefore very much tailored toward abolition. Um, so I don't have long-term solutions for how policing and prisons might improve. I can think of ways that they can improve right now. I can think of ways that they might accommodate the deaf prisoners who are incarcerated right now. I can think of ways that policing can be improved so that when you do encounter a racialized and deaf or otherwise disabled person on the street or elsewhere, that it doesn't result in assault or, you know, in, in unfortunately too many cases in death. You know, I can think of ways that those encounters might be improved but yeah to just reiterate I, I don't have long-term solutions because to me the long-term solution is just a different a different future where we talk about community where we talk about mutual aid where black bodies disabled bodies racialized bodies bodies that are currently deemed abnormal in relationship to whiteness are in fact celebrated, in fact, not criminalized, and don't have expectations about 
themselves that deem them ineligible for personhood. That's what the future is, it is a radical future of community and, and togetherness that doesn't have prisons and policing in the picture. Thank you for sharing that, Elaine. Um, I think you're obviously incredibly informed um, in this topic. Um, but I wonder if, if, you know, for example, if Joe or I or any of our listeners um, or anybody who's not an expert in these in the topics of race, disability and policing, um, like, do you have any advice on how we can have these conversations surrounding those topics? Yeah, I mean, I think I it's it's definitely when we talk about disability even, right? It can't really, it's it's almost like before we even get to race, disability and policing, to those conversations, just to even just revisiting how we understand disability, I think is so important. And I really am influenced when it comes to disability by disability studies and by the scholars, Tanya Tishkowski and Rod Kalko, when they talk about disability studies as not being the study of disability, which we have, you know, in special ed, in psychology, not to dismiss those fields, but those studies are there. But disability studies makes what we call normalcy its object. And so when I think about how we can even begin to have these conversations, if we're not necessarily familiar with these conversations quite yet, is just thinking about how we understand what it means to be normal what it means to behave normally, and how that has bearing on how we understand the concept of race, as well as how we understand the concept of disability. Uh, there are a lot of words, you know, we talked about words before in our in our conversation prior to, the, to this recording, language that we use in every day that we might not even realize are, are very, harmful to disabled communities. And, you know, there are some that I think are becoming more archaic, like the R word, right? And I don't want to say it, but I think we both know what word I'm talking about. Um, but also there are words I think that we often don't really realize have bearing on uh, the intersectional history of disability. And so, words like freak or crazy or insane, you know, those have bearing on, on mad people in the mad community. Um, words like blind, right? We say that a lot in, in everyday language, you know, how could you be so blind to all of these? And interestingly enough, that's also used a lot in social justice praxis, right? I'm in the Department of Social Justice Education, and I'll be really frank and say, I've heard that a lot right like i've heard this like how could we be bought well how could we be blind to racism and while that absolutely has an effect on what we're what we're trying to express in that sentence the word blind there is 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 not being used as blind as desirable or blind as other than other than uh lack of sight or absence of sight Right. And so, again, we talk about that single story when we use these words without thinking or without really reflecting on what they mean and where they come from. We we also add to that we contribute to those single stories that we tell of deafness and disability and race. So, yeah, just thinking and reflecting on our, the ways we talk, the ways we behave, the ways that we 
turn towards disability in our everyday life and also the ways we turn toward what it means to be normal. True words have never been spoken. I think it is really, and that's like, and we've talked, talked about in our last, uh, our introduction to, pod, to the podcast was, you know, the words that we use um, and a lot of the words that you use or even, you know, the, the blind comment. I mean, I, I got to be honest, I, um, I, I had never thought about it. Um, and that's, and that's really such an important point of this that, you know, saying, oh, you know, uh, what are you blind? I mean, I'm, I'm for sure at fault at that. Um, and it's something that I will definitely take away from this conversation and being much more aware of, of the way that I, uh, I speak and, and definitely I'm not going to say that again. Um, so thank you so much, Elaine, for being our first guest on the podcast race academia thank you so much for having me i am so happy about this podcast i think Melon and joe that this is such an amazing idea to to be in conversation with you know racialized graduate students and and other and other folks and what they do and what they're passionate about i can't wait to listen to more of your episodes thank you so much elaine we really really appreciate you coming on the show That was an awesome conversation. What do you think, Joe? I was very excited to hear her talk about the single story narratives because I do believe we're so stuck with the idea that individuals of particular groups are really just one story and not full complex human beings. And we discussed the importance of not imposing our own narratives on people and telling their story, but shifting our focus to empower individuals to tell their truth. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I thought about that a lot when Elaine talked about blindness and the term blind, which is something that I think a lot of us use in our everyday language that actually has deep meaning and is an identifier for others. So I think I'll definitely be more aware of this moving forward in my conversations in my own life. Uh, and now we'll hear from our student highlight, Bilal Khan. Hi, my name is Bilal Khan, uh, and I am a PhD student in my first year uh, at the Institute of Health Policy Evaluation and Management at the University of Toronto. Uh, and my racial identity is South Asian, specifically uh, Pakistani. Um, so I'll talk a little bit more about my research. So uh, mental health policy reform in the uh, Canadian criminal justice system is direly needed to improve outcomes for inmates with mental illness. Um, and the evaluation of a mental health intervention called VISE at two Ontario Correctional Centres will measure uh, clinical outcomes and reincarceration uh, in this population. Uh, and the aim of my research is to understand the complex journeys uh, and nuanced experiences of inmates with mental illnesses. Uh, so the objectives of this research are as follows. It's to evaluate the effectiveness of the framework used in uh, the uh, FISE intervention uh, at those two uh, correctional facilities uh, to describe the sociodemographic features, uh, clinical profiles and social determinants of health of incarcerated individuals with mental illnesses. Um, and then characterize the clinical pathways and outcomes for incarcerated uh, individuals with mental illnesses. So uh, the, the whole entire evaluation will use a uh, population-based algorithm to determine the accuracy of, of screening people uh, that are coming into the two correctional centers with mental illnesses, uh, and then uh, providing them with uh, accessible treatment. Um, 
the the outcome uh, of this research will generate re evidence for uh, integrated mental health services in correctional uh, facilities um, and impact the continuity of mental health services on uh, clinical outcomes after correctional release uh, and the the study's uh, findings will be used with uh, used by the Institute of Advancements in Mental Health, uh, an organization that's capable of using evidence generated by this work to advocate for improved services in correctional facilities. Thank you to both Elaine and Bilal for their contributions to this episode, and we'll talk to you in two weeks with more exciting conversations. This podcast was brought to you by UTGSU's Race and Ethnicity Caucus executive team. The music was created by Christine Kian, and the artwork was created by Karen Fang and Kashana Danvers. And thank you to the rest of the executive team, Elaine Kagulata, Danica Chaharlangi, Mariam Karim, and Sylvia Vong for all your support.